Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Romans chapter 14 today. We're going to be taking it really from verse 1 all the way to 15.6, I think it's going to be, is where we're going to wrap up right there. Um, many of you guys are noticing we are getting to the end of Paul's letter to the Romans. I know that many of you didn't think we were actually going to make it. And you're like, you're going to give up at some point along the way and stop preaching Romans. And we will not do that at all. And so um, it is wrapping up here. Uh, and I'll just tell you, I'll remind you kind of where we be- began back in August. But back in August, we were coming into uh, what undoubtedly was one of the most tenuous, one of the most um, stressful, one of the most uneasy, uneven times, culturally speaking, that we've ever had unstable ground everywhere you look. And we wanted to jump into Romans. We wanted to be deeply rooted in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's letter to the Romans does that. It's all about the gospel, how it brings together very unique, very diverse types of people, uh, unites them under the blood of Jesus Christ. And we wanted to be deeply rooted in the truth of the gospel. So I've been having a fun time in this book. We are wrapping up here and uh, in the next few weeks. I'm titled this one, Harmony Over Homogeny. Okay, I don't know if you're a note taker, you write things down, harmony over homogeny, and we're going to be talking a little bit about how to live in harmony with one another when really there is no homogeny, even when that's not even the end goal of our gathering or anything like that, how we live in harmony with one another. Paul goes there in chapter 12. Uh, You know the outline, sort of the structure of Paul's argument to this church in Rome here, but for 11 chapters, it's all about theology. Here's what God has done for you in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here are the glories of that. Here's the truth of how, uh, of, of all he's done on your behalf. And then he turns the corner in chapter 12 with this therefore statement, in light of everything we just talked about, he says, live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another, not homogeny with one another, not sameness or uniformity or everybody looking the exact same way on every little detail of life, but he says live in harmony with one another. He repeats this at the end of our section today, 15, 5, and uh, 6. He's going to have a little blessing here at the end where he says, May the God of all endurance and the God of encouragement grant you the ability to live in harmony with one another. And so I love his choice of words here, and I love thinking about this idea of harmony because I think it helps paint the picture and help us, it helps us envision a little bit of what God has for us here in our fellowship here at DBC. We know what a harmony is, right? A harmony is a gathering of different people singing different notes, right? It's different keys, and all coming together in their differences and creating a more beautiful sound in the end. This is what harmony is. We just sang it. We just did it together as we're singing here together. You notice like some people behind you, you're listening to the people around you and you're going, hey, they're taking a higher key than what I was singing in. And some people are going a little bit lower than what you're comfortable in. And, and there's a number of different keys and tones and things of that nature. And they're all coming together. And in the fellowship and in the continuity of our song, there's a beautiful harmony that is different from anything you can produce in and of yourself. And this is the picture that he's going to be giving us here in this text. As I was going through the passage, I was reminded of a, of a tradition that my family engages in. And we have since, honestly, I was a little child. But uh, I think I've told you before, my family ha- is pretty diverse in our denominational representation. Um, all Christian, but a number of different denominations across the board. We all have our strong opinions. We are, uh, many are also in full-time ministry. And, uh, but this is what's unique about our gathering. When we come together, aunts, uncles, cousins, brothers, sisters, the whole thing. We've got a room full of people. And I'm looking around the room, and it's like we've got Baptists in that room. We've got Methodists. We've got Presbyterians. We're like an independent. We're like kind of the rebels of the group, like non-denominational denominations. Um, and then like, we've got like hardcore Pentecostals in my family. And like we all gather together around the dinner table and we do our thing and we talk and it makes for some really, really lively conversation. But 
One of the traditions that we've had is that every time we get together around Thanksgiving, Christmas, or a gathering, or something like that, before we come together to eat, we all stand, and we hold hands, and we sing a song. And I've told you this before, like, we know it's corny. Like, I know it's corny. We always make fun of my mom for having us do this, and she's absolutely right in having us do this, but we nevertheless give her a hard time for it. And, um, And so we stand, and we sing this song. And the song goes, for health and strength and daily food, we give thee thanks, O Lord. Anybody heard this before? Are we the only ones that this? Okay, we've heard of it. We've got a few people right there. I, and here's the thing. Like, growing up, we, we hated it on the front end of things. And on the back end of things, we're like, okay, this is, this is right. This is good. This is one of these things that you appreciate. But what we would do is we would take this song and we'd break it down into parts. So we got like 20, 25 people in this room, and it's like this four is going to be like for health and strength, for health and strength, for health and strength. So we've got like these rounds going in our living room right there. And we're all laughing about it and having a good time. We'd be like, this is so absurd. We're praise God, it's only family in this room and stuff. But we're like, uh, but, but we start singing it, and then we get into the middle of it. And then we wrap it all up at the very end, and the song comes to a conclusion, and everybody just sits there and goes, Amen. And you got some people going high, you got some people going low. And then everybody comes together, and we're holding hands, and at the continuation of this thing, we just look around and we just think, you know what? There's something right, there's something beautiful about the harmony of our fellowship right here. In the middle of all of our disagreements, in the middle of all of the unique ways that God has crafted each of us, we know that there's something beautiful about the harmony that this song represents in this thing. This is the picture that Paul is going to be giving us, not only for our families, but for our fellowship. Like not just for the people that you're, you're united to in blood that you kind of have to love, you have to care for them, like you share the same name or something like that. Like, like not just for them. This is the picture that he's going to be giving us for our own fellowship here in this room. And so the question that I want to look at today is like functionally speaking, how do we live in harmony with one another? Coming off of a year like 2020, 2021, like we've had more things we could possibly debate over, fight over, divide over than at any other time that personally I've been alive right here. It's like, how do we functionally come together and live together in harmony? When we're talking about things like COVID and we're talking about things like masking and social distancing and stay-at-home orders and canceled schools and lost jobs and justice versus social justice and things like racism and, and, and things like conspiracy theories, left and right, all over the place. And politically, one of the most contentious elections that we've had in a really, really, really long time. And we're coming off of years when there are more things that have been dividing and ripping believers apart than at any other time in the past. How in the world do we live together in harmony with one another? This is the, th- this is the thing that Paul's going to go after here in this section. And so he says here in verse 1 in chapter 14, He simply says this, as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome them. In other words, embrace them, hug them, give them a smile. And not just one of those plastic ones that you can do in church culture sometimes, but like actually mean it. Like embrace them, welcome them, love them right here. But he says, not for the sake of fighting over opinions. In other words, like he's saying that there are some things that are really, really clear, and there's some things that are more debatable. Literally, the word for opinions right there, it literally means debatable matters. That's what he's talking about right here. Don't welcome them in and be like, ha I'm going to rip you apart in this argument. Like, that's not the way that we're welcoming people. You're not sitting here going, yeah, yeah, I should have been a lawyer, and this is my chance to shine right now. 
And, and so like, this is what he's saying. He's like, welcome them and embrace them, but not for the sake of fighting over debatable matters. There's some things that are really, really clear in Scripture. There are other things that are more debatable. And so this is what he's talking about here in this text. And so it's important to understand as, as, as we talk about harmony over homogeny, harmony over sameness, uniformity, anything like that, we are not talking about harmony at any cost. Okay, we're not talking about lowering the standard of truth, not defining things. We're not talking about anything like that. Uh, Paul's going to be very, very clear in Galatians. He's going to say, if anyone teaches a different gospel than the one we're talking about right now, you should label them a false teacher and not entertain those truths. In other words, like there's some things you do not budge on. There's some things you don't mess with the integrity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't add to it. You don't subtract from it. No, no, no. If anybody is preaching anything other than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, salvation by God's grace through faith in him, he's like, he's like you call that out and you engage in those, you engage in those conversations. Uh, Proverbs is going to talk about justice and say, you know, you don't lower the bar of justice right here. He's going to say, you speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. You speak up for the rights of all who are destitute. You speak up and you judge fairly and you defend the rights of the poor and the needy. In other words, there's others that are going to be unconcerned with some of these matters and you defend them. The ones who don't have the voice, you defend them. You come up and you speak what's right. You do what's right. You don't lower the standards of, of justice and righteousness. And here, this is a responsibility that believers have. You engage the conversation and you defend their rights. Isaiah is going to say, learn to do good. Seek justice and correct oppression. In other words, there is such a thing as oppression. It actually does exist, culturally speaking. Believers in the church should be the ones who learn to do good, seek justice, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Right? Like this is what he's talking about. First Corinthians, he's going to say, if someone is practicing open and unrepentant immorality, deal with them. You may need to remove them from the fellowship. In other words, like we're not talking about harmony at all costs. We're not talking about a Unitarian idea uh, that loves the idea of unity, but does it at the expense of like, hey, eliminating all truth, eliminating all definitions of righteousness or morality or however you want to talk about it right there. We're not talking about what he's saying right here is that not everything we think is that level of serious is actually that serious. Not everything that we're talking about is an absolute matter of clarity. And so in matters like this, he's saying, hey, no, no, it's harmony over homogeny. Never forget a, um, a professor of mine back in the seminary days tried to break it down into different categories so that we can understand, kind of uh, delineate some of the different matters that we see in scripture that often bring about division in the church. And uh, it was an interesting conversation in the classroom, but he broke it down into three categories, essential matters, important matters, and debatable matters. And so he broke it down like this, and essentially, you know, the essential matters are the matters that are essential to salvation. We're talking about the character and nature of God, um, the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, that dual nature right there, humanity's sinfulness, uh, the fallout of our sin, the brokenness and the separation that it creates. Jesus' substitutionary life and death. You hear me talk about this all the time. Jesus did not just die upon a cross as an example of how to sacrifice your life and give it away for other people. He actually accomplished something on that cross. Our sin earned death. He took that punishment for us. There was a substitution that took place upon that cross, we're talking about things like a literal and physical resurrection, and we're talking about like salvation by God's grace through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, essential matters of the faith. There's a lot of clarity in, in Scripture. The other category is important matters, and this is where it's going to get a little bit more, um, probably a little bit new, more nuanced, but essentially you could say uh, that this is pretty much everything that God calls us to know, do, and be in the context of the entirety of Scriptures, you know. 
other important things that you can disagree on, you don't have to have full knowledge of in order to be saved. So we're talking about really important things in some of these things, like um, we're talking about uh, the inspiration, the inerrancy of Scripture, that this is actually God's Word. You probably don't come in with full understanding and knowledge of that at the time of salvation. Nevertheless, this is an essential matter. It's a very, very important matter to understanding God's word, following him well. Matters of moral clarity and things of that nature. And then, of course, the last one is more debatable matters. And these are going to be matters that he's granted us freedom in the context of his word that people debate on because we see tensions. And we see on the one hand over here, like this is affirmed over here. And on this hand over here, like this is affirmed. And there's, there's tension in these things. And you see that there is freedom. And so he tries, this is really fascinating. He tries to delineate in these categories to help bring a little bit better clarity. And I think you can probably predict where this goes next, right? He sits there and talks about like important matters, debatable matters. And of course, like the hands immediately shoot up and they're like, all right, prof, so what about like a seven-day literal creation? What are we talking, is that an important matter or is that a more debatable matter, right? Or Calvinism, is, how essential is that? I actually had a friend back in the day that was always saying, hey, you cannot be saved unless you're a Calvinist, right? Uh, yeah, those two are incompatible if, you, if, you don't, if you're not a full five-point Calvinist, something like that. We're talking about matters of theology. What about tongues, right? If you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, will you necessarily speak in tongues? If you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Like, these are things that people in the church are divided on and fought over for centuries from the very beginning. And so again, like the categories right here, they're really, really helpful. But the whole reason we're even talking about this thing is that it's not always simple and it's not always easy to figure out, hey, what fits into which category, right? Like we get this. They even talk about, hey, around here I say things like, hey, we major on the majors, we minor on the minors, matters of disagreement, it's grace and truth side by side always. And we say that and quite honestly over the years I've looked at that and been like, all right, that sounds great, it preaches pretty well. Um, but it doesn't always solve the question of like, all right, what are we talking about? Are, are we saying that this is a minor, that it's not a big deal? And we debate about these things. It's the nature of a debatable matter is that we have disagreement about what's important and what's absolutely clear in scripture and what's not absolutely clear in scripture. And the other tension is that most of these matters we're going to be talking about, right? They all feel really important, right? When we're talking about like following Jesus and the truth of God's word, they're important matters, and they all feel really, really important to us. They feel like, like it's number one, and we've got to go after this thing above everything else. And so this is the tension that we're talking about right here. It is the reality that God in his infinite wisdom chose not to dictate every single decision that you and I would ever make in 21st century Dallas, Texas, as believers in Jesus Christ. But instead, he chose to give us the indwelling Holy Spirit, and he chose to give, he chose to give us the truth of his word, and a number of different things that are very, very clear about what to do, what not to do, and a number of other principles that provide a framework for leaning into him and discerning what it is that he's specifically calling us to do. And so he says, yeah, in those cases where it's not always clear and matters that are more debatable, where there may be freedom given in scripture, you welcome the weaker person because harmony is more important than our homogeny. And so he continues and he goes on here and, and uh, we get to see some of the debate that's taking place in the first century. Okay, and so these are two things. They're debating two things primarily. Number one, what kind of foods are appropriate to eat as a believer in the first century, uh, which sounds a little bit crazy, but he says in verse two, one person believes that he can eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables, which is not a debate about, hey, are you a carnivore or a vegetarian or, what, like what, like that, like, or anything like that. Um, 
you can already see kind of the bent that Paul's going at right here. He's got convictions about this as one who is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he teaches about it later on. But when he's talking about the weak person here, um, it's important to understand we're not talking about the physically weak person here. We're not talking about necessarily someone, just whoever disagrees with you or is on the other side of the disagreement aisle from where you are. We're not even talking about necessarily someone who is immature in the faith or anything like that. We're talking about someone who has taken a liberty and turned it into law and then imposed it on other people. Are you with me here? We're talking about somebody who has taken something that is a liberty in Scripture, turned it into law for all other people around us. And we're not even talking about a personal conviction here. We're talking about, like, there are where we come in and we... uh, uh, we develop a personal conviction about what's the right thing to do regarding alcohol or voting or whatever it may be. And this is the way that the Lord has led me. Uh, but we're talking about taking that personal conviction and imposing it on other people. This is what's going on here with eating in the first century. And it seems sort of silly to us. But back then when you're living in Roman culture where you've got idolatry all over the place. Like literally idols are all over the place. And what they would do is they would take the first fruits of their meat and their, their, their sacrifices, their livestock... And they would take the first fruits of that, they would offer it to an idol on a platter. And then, of course, inevitably, like, the idols aren't eating the meat, right? And so at the end of the day, they come back and they're like, all right, I need to get a little something out of this sacrifice. So they come and they take the meat back and they offer it for a discount at the market, right? It's that discounted meat section right there, right? You're going to always second guess that every time you go there now. Uh, it's a little green on top. Anyway, um, but the idols obviously are not eating it. And so they're coming back, they're offering it back at the market, you can get a good discount on it. And so this is the debate that's going on here at the church. Should we eat that meat or not? And some people are going to go, no, 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 no. Like we're participating in idol worship by doing that, right? This is satanic to do that. Other people are sitting there going, okay, well, those, those aren't actually gods, right? It's, it, it's a stone or an anthill. Like it's not actually gods here. And we know that Christ spoke about this and he actually cleansed us from these things. Like he's actually made this meat clean. And so they're going, hey, we've got freedom over here. And they're going, no, 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 it's satanic. No, we have freedom. No, 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 it's satanic. And so you see the tension that's going on here at the church. That's the first issue. The second issue that's going on here is, okay, which is the right day to worship? Uh, is it Saturday, as the Jews have observed from, you know, eternity past, from the very beginning, like for the past 1,500 years, do we worship on Saturday or do we move to Sunday in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And this is what they're dealing with. You got Jews and Gentiles in fellowship. They're going, hey, Saturday is the right day. No, 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 no. Sunday's the right day. Jesus is raised from the dead, makes things differently, right? And this is the tension that's going on. Some of us have experienced that. Maybe you've seen churches, we do Saturday night worship. We do Sunday night worship. You're like, well, it's not really Sunday morning. I don't know if it counts that other day. Other people are going, yeah, he's made it free. We've, we're totally fine in that thing. Like this is the difference. This is the difficulty that's going on there in that first century. And we read some of these arguments. We're sitting there going, that's just silly. Right? You guys are arguing about meat. You guys are, asking, you guys are arguing about like Saturday versus Sunday. Like who, why, how in the world would people divide over such silly things? Oh, but we do. Right? I mean, come on, let's be really, really real here. Can you just think for a second about any number of the different things that we've divided on at some point in the church's past? Not necessarily here. Maybe you're a part of other churches. Maybe you have been a part of it. Maybe you've just heard about it. Like, we divide over some really, really crazy things, don't we? And a lot of them are very legit. But you think about it. It's like back in the day, like one of the things they were talking about is, okay, what are you supposed to wear to church? Do you need to dress up and put a suit and tie, wear a dress? I mean, we need to be bringing our best to God this communicates a holiness and a reverence for who he is, this other than-ness. It is important in our worship, and it brings a lot of value in that. Do we need to be dressing up, or do we come as we are, right? 
Do we come as we are? Because God accepts us as we are. And both means they communicate different things over here. But like, this is one of the major things that people divided on back in the past. Dancing. How many of you grew up in a, in a culture where like dancing was the worst thing you could possibly do in your, in your, in your life? Right? Like in youth group, you were in youth group and stuff. And they're like, yeah, don't make out with your girlfriend, your boyfriend and stuff because it might lead to dancing. Right? You remember this, right? Like that was the worst thing that could possibly happen back in the day. Style of worship. Do you bring drums and a guitar up on stage? You remember this, right? Like, do we, like, those, are, those are of the devil. Like, that's, that's rock music. That's satanic music and stuff. And you want to bring that into worship? Like, we remember some of these tensions that are going on there. Should a Christian listen to secular music? Maybe you grew up in that youth group in the early 90s or whatever, and you had that bonfire rally at youth group. Remember this? Bring your secular CDs. We're going to burn these things. You remember this? And like, people are throwing them in the fire and stuff. And youth pastors are like, yeah, you hear that hissing? There's all the demons leaving those CDs. You know, you're like... I don't know that that's true, bro. You're like, I, I don't know that that's actually the case, but like, we did that. Like, we did that, and, and there was massive divisions. You listen to this, you're out of the club. You do listen to this, or you don't, or whatever it may be. Like, one way or the other, you're out of the club. We divided over these things. Alcohol. Should you or can you drink being of responsible age? Is there such a thing as moderation? I remember I was listening to a pastor that was talking about how his grandma's church actually split over the question of whether or not you should have air conditioning in the sanctuary during worship. This was the thing back in, I think it was around the 50s that he was describing it. But he's like, you know, it's not natural. If God wanted us to have AC, he would have given us AC. It's not natural. We need to take it. Like, that was the big thing. Is it moral to have air conditioning in our sanctuary? Praise God that some people want out on that thing, right? <laughs> Especially in Texas. But like, this is the, he's like, their church actually split over that thing. And I, we're not talking about silly things. Some of those things sound pretty silly. But I mean, think about some of the things. Entertainment. Can you watch Harry Potter or not? Right? You remember these debates. Enneagram. Is it satanic or is it a discovery tool just to understand yourself better and learn how to communicate better with other people? Yoga. Satanic. New age experience. Or is it great exercise and stretching? Like, do, you have to, do you necessarily have to go there? Halloween. Every Halloween, I'm going to get an email from people that are, do you know the satanic roots of this thing? Uh, and they were going to be talking about, hey, there were sacrifices. There was all these things. And I was like, you know, we left that part out of our experiences here. But uh, that's, that's always going to be a thing. <laughs> Masking. That was a big one this past year, right? Are you afraid? Are, are, you, are you living in fear because of the government? Are, are you not trusting God? Or are you wearing a mask in deference for another? Uh, this is a huge thing that was dividing people this past year. You're either afraid and terrified of you're not trusting of God or else you're doing it a different. You either don't love people or you're afraid of God, right? Like that's the, that's the, the thing that we kind of set up. And, and people are dividing over it all over the place. I guarantee churches all over the place have shifted over that issue. The best way to raise your kids is a public school, private school, or homeschool. What's the godly thing to do there? Stay at home or go to work? Uh, you, you know these things. Like, you want to have some fun? Uh, get some popcorn, watch the Facebook debates about homeschool, public school, private school, and this thing, right? I mean, you could have some fun, or you could start crying, one of the two. But uh, uh, these are the things we divide up politics, right? You cannot be a Christian unless you vote this way. You cannot love children unless you vote this way. You cannot care about the poor. You are a bigot unless you vote this way. Church, this is what we're talking about over here. It's all these different issues. And I guarantee you, at some point in this, in this kind of talking about these things, like there's something in you on some of these issues, you're going like, ooh, I got a strong conviction about that. Right? Like you know what that feels like. 
We know what this feels like because you've, maybe you've done some wrestling with it at some point in the past, but like, like this is it. And like all of these different issues, at some point, some of them are going to feel really, 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 really important to you. And so here's what Paul's saying about how to handle some of these convictions. This is number one, welcome the weaker brother or sister. This is verse one. Number two, don't judge, cancel, or despise them. In verse three, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed that person. In other words, like, don't pronounce condemnation or doom or separation on another, especially in matters of freedom, as you examine it under, under the truth of God's word. And we're going to circle back around a little bit more to this one here in just a little bit. I want to move on to the third one right here, because this is the one that he says, which I feel like is very, very counterintuitive. Look what he says here in verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Right? Some people think it's Saturday. Some people think it's Sunday. Uh, or any other day, doesn't matter. Each one, he says, should be fully convinced in his own mind. Doesn't that sound like the last thing that you should do if you're trying to create harmony in a fellowship? This is where Paul goes. He says, each one of you should be fully convinced in your own mind for harmony to take place. This is what he's saying, like wrestle with it. Bring it before the Lord. Examine this issue in light of the truth of God's word Bring it to the Lord in prayer. Ask, Holy Spirit, would you come and illuminate your truth in this situation right here? Father, what would you have me do in the context of this decision? Is it public school, private school, home school in the middle of this context? Like, what do we do about Halloween? Do we put costumes on the kids or not? I, I like this exercise. You know, whatever the thing may be. Father, what do you say about it in Scripture? Holy Spirit, what are you leading me to do in light of Scripture and then run with this whole thing. He's, that's what he's saying. Like, be fully convinced in his own mind. And this is the last thing you would think makes sense. But what he's saying right here is, no, 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 no. Harmony is not taking place simply through the destruction of truth, through the lowering of morality, through the blowing up of whatever the thing may be. No, no, no. Be fully convinced of your own mind. And something about this has to do with harmony. There's two things that I think are playing out here. Um, number one thing that I think is playing out, and we're going to get to the more explicit one in the text here in just a second. I don't know if you've ever noticed this dynamic or not, but I personally notice that when I do the work of examination and I bring an issue that is unclear, a matter of freedom, and I bring it to the text and I do that whole process, God, what are you saying in your word? Holy Spirit, what are you saying in this moment? Like, what is the right thing for me to do? I notice a few things taking place. Number one, I'm not as insecure about the decision that I make. In other words, I don't have as much of a tendency to respond in fear or in vitriol or whatever it may be because I've done the work of examination and I'm pretty confident about what God is saying through the truth of his word and through prayer and what he's leading us to do in the middle of this moment, leading to better harmony in the end. It means that I've noticed this thing where I'm not as triggered by other people's disagreement because I've already wrestled with it in the scriptures and I know the tensions that are at play. I'm not surprised by that. And so I'm not like shocked when, hey, guess what? You made a different decision than I made. Or when you don't see it the exact same way that I see it. And then I've also noticed that it makes me less judgy in the end because of this understanding, because of being fully convinced in my own mind, having done the work of examination, bringing it to the Lord. He does this way of softening you inside to understand the breadth of the conversation or to even read passages like this, which tell you what to do in the middle of disagreement here. But it makes for better harmony in the end. I'll get really, really specific with this and share with you a story of uh, one that I was wrestling with in the early 20s. In my, not the 1920s, my early 20s. Um, and so, uh, but back then, for me, one of the issues was, okay, should I drink or should I not? Right? Um, growing up, I, I, I didn't drink. We didn't have it in the home. 
and uh, there's a lot of different reasons and stuff for that. It never was a temptation for me. I didn't like it. I had a lot of friends, great youth group and stuff, so I wasn't that tempted with it. It was just never a central issue for me. Even getting into college, had a lot of different uh, other avenues, had tons of fun, and just never went down that, I never went there. I didn't, need, didn't want it. And so I get married, we come to Dallas, Texas, and, um, and I never really drank at that point. And uh, I came, it was like 23, something like that. I, still, I didn't have my first drink until I was probably 23, 24, glass of wine. And I remember coming back, we were doing apartment life ministry. Apartment life is an incredible ministry where you're going and essentially being chaplains for an apartment complex. And you're doing just life-on-life ministry with this community, which was incredible. These are all kinds of people that are never going to walk in the doors of your church. And I loved it. Kat and I just loved it. And we were out there all the time, and we're doing all these different events. And people would have their drink with dinner and all this kind of stuff, and they'd offer it to me. And I'd be like, no, 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 I don't, I don't drink. I'm good. And I noticed this thing take place in the context of some of these relationships where some of the guys would look at me, and they'd be like, wait, what? You don't have a drink? And they would freak, they, they, they would be like, all right, what's going on? Are you judging me because I am? What's going on? And I noticed this thing. They knew that the young seminary guy that was about to be the pastor, that kind of a thing, was also refraining. And they're sitting there going, okay, the, the dude's judging me all over the place. And I remember coming home and having this conversation with Kat. And I was like, my whole paradigm is shifting a little bit because I'm sitting there realizing for the first time that my unwillingness to even have a social, a social drink in moderation is hurting my ability to connect with a number of different people over here. And I was like, I, I, they have no trust. We have no relationship. And I was like, this has never been a temptation to go further. So I come back and I bring it before the truth of God's word, which says things like, okay, don't get drunk with wine. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm going, okay, like drunk, absolutely. Like there is a too much. There is such a thing as too much. And that is not the way that a believer is ever supposed to go. There's also Jesus' first, you know, miracles, turning water into what? Wine, right? And enjoying it and providing it for us. And there's a number of different affirmations for different contexts over there. And I remember wrestling with this thing, going, okay, Father, what would you have me do in the middle of this thing? And I realized at that time, there is a, such a thing, there is such a thing as moderation. Meanwhile, I've got other ministry people coming out of a long, a different life throughout the college days. And they're coming out saying, you know what? This is wrong for me to do it. And we had fellowship and we had unity on the same page. My point in telling you all this is through the process of examination, bringing it in the truth of God's word, Holy Spirit, what would you have me do in the middle of this context to not only be okay with you, but to to be missional and to be able to engage people really, really well over here? Father, what would you have me do through the context of that examination? I developed an appreciation for the freedom that is given in certain matters in scripture over here. And it made me more confident in the decision that I made to the point that I'm not responding in fear or vitriol or judgment towards other people who disagree over this thing. And there was a harmony, not only among brothers, but an effectiveness in mission engagement and friendship and in everything else over there. Does that make sense at all? Through the process, he does a work that creates a better harmony in the end. And I think this is what he's saying right here when he's saying, no, no, bring it to the Lord. Like, don't just, don't leave it unchecked. Bring it to him. Let him, examine it in the truth of God's word. Examine it in the context of prayer. Like, don't lower your convictions for the sake of harmony. He's saying, strengthen them. Politics, bring your politics to the truth of God's word. Every year, because it's different and it's changing all the time, bring it to the truth of God's word. Is any of what's going on here in the platform, the policies, the character, the leadership, any of the things, does any of this look or even sound like Jesus whatsoever? Bring it to the truth of God's word, the the fullness of it. 
And don't just take somebody's word for it or just say, you know what, this is just what I've always, examine it, he's saying. Be fully convinced in your own mind of what the right thing is to do, but don't break fellowship over something that's debatable, he's saying right here. Same thing, public school, private school, homeschool, whatever the debate may be over here, bring it to the Lord. What is right for your family in this season? Discern it together as a family. Discern that thing, but with the people in your fellowship, in your small group, in your life group, whatever it may be, don't break fellowship over matters that are matters of freedom over here. And so he continues, and like this is what he's talking about here in this text. He continues and he says this. Um, he says, one person esteems one day is better than another. Be fully convinced uh, in his own mind. Oh, here it is, verse five, I missed it. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Okay, this is the second reason he's gonna say, be fully convinced in your own mind. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. Okay, the one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains also in honor of the Lord, and he gives thanks to God. Like, isn't that fascinating? I mean, in other words, like, you can eat or you can not eat. And both sides can be honoring to the Lord in that particular matter. Isn't this fascinating? Like, listen to what he's saying right here. Like, these people that are warring with each other over this issue— God, the Holy Spirit, speaking through the Apostle Paul, is saying, no, 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 okay, one can eat, the other can abstain, but both of them are honoring the Lord in the process. Like one can drink in a moderation and the other can abstain. Both of them can actually honor God in the process. Church, like this is how freedom works. In matters of freedom, the why is always greater than the what. In matters of freedom, like, what he's saying right here is like, I want to know why you choose to do it more so than what you choose to do in the end in matters of freedom. Again, right here. Like, this is what he's saying. He's like, it's not that the what doesn't matter. It's just I want to know why you choose to do the different things that you do. Verse 22, Paul's going to continue and he's going to say this. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment upon himself for what he approves. In other words, blessed is the man or woman who moves forward in some of these things and has a clean conscience. Verse 23, whoever has doubts is condemned even if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is actually sin. In other words, like if I choose to eat or drink, do homeschool, public school, private school, whatever the thing, vote left or right, whatever the thing may be, when my conscience before God, after examination, bringing it to the Lord and prayer, if I choose to do something that after that examination is contrary to what he told me to do, that thing in and of itself becomes sin. If my decision has nothing to do with what my God may be saying in this thing, that decision in and of itself is sinful before God. Why? Because the why is more important than the what. So for instance, like if I were to hypothetically make up in my mind that doing this means something really, really bad, right? I, I have no knowledge that it actually does, and I, uh, high schoolers had a chance to reprove me in between services. I don't think that this means anything bad. If I made up in my mind that this is a bad symbol, and somebody cuts me off on 635, and I'm like, ooh, yeah, buddy. <laughs> they have no idea what you're talking about. They're like, what was that? But I knew in my heart what I was communicating to them. What he's saying right here is that's enough. The, the why is more important than the what. This is what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. He's raising the standard of holiness. You remember this? And he says, you've heard it said, you shouldn't murder. Awesome. <laughs> I'm telling you not to even entertain hatred in your heart to where you call another brother or sister fool. Right? I, not even to deal with that. Like you've heard it said not to commit adultery. Yeah, that's wonderful. I'm telling you not to even lust over somebody who's not your spouse. In other words, like, I, I, I don't just care about what you do. I want to know why you're doing it. Holiness begins in the heart. It's not just the external things that you do. 
It's why two people can do the exact same thing, one be honoring to God, the other dishonoring. Cain and Abel both brought sacrifices to the Lord, right? One did it as a first fruits of his offering. It was honorable and received by God. Other one did it as an afterthought, kind of the, the back end of what he was doing, and it was not honorable to the Lord. Two people can worship the same way. They can run laps in the room, looking awesome like you're worshiping Jesus. One can be doing it, saying, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me, look how much I love Jesus. And the other person can be doing it as an honest expression of affection for, oh my gosh, look how good our God is. And what he's saying is that the two things can look the same and be very different on the inside. And so this is what he's getting at right here. He says, don't judge the what. When God is more interested in the why on some of these freedom secondary matters over here. And because he's able to see the why, you and I are not able to see the why. It puts us in a really, really bad position to be so judgmental and condemning and separating in the end. And so he repeats this thing all throughout this section. It just, he just puts it on repeat. He says, let not the one who abstains pass judgment. In other words, you say, hey, you know what? I'm not going to do this. He's saying, hey, you who made that decision... Don't pass judgment on your brother who decided that they do have the freedom to go do that. Don't be judgy about it. Who are you to pass judgment? Verse 4. Why do you pass judgment? Verse 10. On your brother and despise him. Look down on him. You're not a real Christian. Like, why do you do that? He's going to stand before the judgment seat of God. In other words, like, there is a God. He is able to judge. He's going to rule out in the end. Why in the world are you jumping in his place? Verse 13. Let's not pass judgment on one another any longer. And so Jesus shows us how this plays out, right? Like he, he shows us how to hold tight on truth and how to live this out really, really well. John chapter 8, there's a woman who's caught in adultery. She's brought by the mob before Jesus, and you remember this whole scene. They come to Jesus, and they bring her, not the man that she was caught in adultery with. It's another one of the injustices back in that time. They bring her before Jesus, and they say, hey, Jesus, the law says we're allowed to stone this woman to death. What do you say? Sounds like a great law, right? And remember what Jesus does. He kneels down in the sand and he starts writing in the sand. And he writes out these words and he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And he gets done writing and he stands up and people read it. And one by one, they start walking away going, I, yeah, I probably can't throw a stone or anything like that. And finally, all the people leave and Jesus looks at this woman and he says, is there no one left to condemn you? She says, no, sir, there's not. And then he says, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. Not it's not sin. Right? It, it, it's not the lowering of the truth, not lowering of the moral bar, not the elimination of holiness. He just simply says, go and sin no more. Like that's how he does it, church. And it's not because adultery isn't a matter of importance. It's very clear in Scripture what he calls us to regarding adultery over here. It's that grace is a thousand times more effective in leading someone to restoration than condemnation. And this is the way of Jesus. This is what he calls us to in these matters that are, that are here, matters of freedom, secondary matters where there's tension in Scripture and things like that. He continues with one more, and he says this, let's not pass judgment on another any longer, but rather decide right now never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother or a sister. In other words, church, it's time to make a decision, he says. It's time to make a decision. Which one is more important? That person's good. The good of my brother, the good of my sister. Your good or my freedom? He says, decide right now. Never put a stumbling block of hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. In other words, like, there's a decision to be made. 
Is it harmony over homogeny? Like, what are we shooting for here? It's time to make a decision. What is more important? Is it your good or is it my personal freedom in this matter? Look what he says, verse 14, for I know that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. In other words, Paul's already done the work. He already knows how silly some of this conversation is because Jesus has made this meat clean. He's given you freedom, given you permission to, hey, have a barbecue. Like he's already done this, but he still acknowledges, hey, it is unclean for you. If you actually had this whole conviction, you're not there yet. You haven't done the examination, whatever it may be. Maybe you're a brand new believer, right? And you're just figuring things out. If this is your conviction that it's actually unclean, immoral, then it is unclean for you to continue in this thing. So he's going back to the why being greater than the what once again over here. Like why you do it actually matters. And what he's saying is choose their good over your freedom. Just give it to them. Lay down. It's not more important for me to sit there and be like, no, no, no. I need a burger and I need a burger now in front of your face. 15, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love, he says. It's not love to come and to flaunt your freedom in front of a brother or sister who this actually wounds their conscience and prohibits them from continuing in worship or else actually leading them into sin. This is what a stumbling block is. A stumbling block is not an occasion for them to be judgmental, right? This is not a thing for them to come in and say, you know what, it's my conviction about this, about this matter over here. Therefore, none of you fools get to do it. He's already been very, very clear about how to deal with being judgmental and all those kinds of things right here. He's not talking about that thing at all. He's sitting there talking about... Um, He's talking about coming with a clean conscience and he's coming and saying, you know what? I'm gonna lay down my freedoms over here for your uh, actual good. This is what he's saying. For the kingdom of God, verse 16, uh, or he says in verse 16, by what you eat, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. Look at your brother and sister. Don't forget that God died for them. Christ died. He gave up his life for their flourishing. They are covered by the blood of the lamb. They are human. They are brought into the exact same body of believers as you. You who disagrees with another, who voted differently, who thinks differently about these different secondary issues over here, you are in the same family of God. Don't crush them, he says. By what you eat, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. In other words, the kingdom of God is not about our freedoms necessarily. It's not about the luxury that we get to live in. It's not about our comforts. It's not about eating. It's not about drinking. It's not about partying. It's not about climbing the ladder. It's not about any of these things, he says. The kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so he says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for a mutual upbuilding. Church, like this is how harmony happens. You who are strong and fully convinced of what he would have you do in this moment. Stand in your confidence, not by demanding more and more of your freedoms, not by demanding, hey, this is what I have the right to do this over and over and over again, but by choosing the other person's good over my own personal freedoms. This is what he's talking about. If my discounted bacon is causing someone to come into sin, like it's, it's actually causing you to come into sin, not to be able to worship, not to be able to engage, and to, to, to threaten your conscience, Right? Maybe it's so tempting, you're sitting there going, I need my bacon, but I shouldn't have my bacon, but I want that bacon, so I'm going to eat that bacon. This is what he's saying. Like, their good is more important than your freedom. Like, like, like with my buddy, my buddy who's a recovering alcoholic, I, like, I don't have to go to small group and bring him to a bar. I don't have to have to serve this at dinner every single night. We can defer for their good. Their good is more important than our freedom. It's the early church in Acts 15, Jews and Gentiles coming together. How do we have fellowship? 
all these different things. And they're coming together at Jerusalem Council, and they're sitting there going, okay, how do we reconcile all these differences? Important things. Like, what are we supposed to do with the Old Testament law? In light of the fact that Christ has set us free. Is salvation really by God's grace through faith in Christ alone? What do we do with the Gentiles' freedom? These are a bunch of liberals coming in. They don't understand. Like they've got all this freedom, and it makes me uncomfortable in this gathering. What are we supposed to do with their freedom? You remember how they respond to this in Acts chapter 15? James the apostle comes up and he says this. He says, it is my judgment, therefore, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Church, can you imagine if that was the attitude of all Christians everywhere under the big C church? We should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. Let's not make it hard for people to understand God's grace. Let's not lead with condemnation, shame tactics, screaming and division all over the place. Let's not make it difficult for them to understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says this, let's not make it hard for them to turn to God. He says, but instead, I love this, verse 20, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. In other words, like, we don't want to make it hard for you to come to God However, we do have a, thing, a few things we want to request and we want to ask you to do so that we can have fellowship and harmony with one another. And so it's exactly what they do. They come and say, hey, we're not going to ask you to do everything over here, but there's a few things that you can do that would make our fellowship a little bit better. Number one, abstain from sexual immorality. In other words, you need to understand there is such a thing as sexual immorality. I know we don't want to define it today, and I know we want, we want to put limits on it and stuff. Like there is such a thing as sexual immorality, and we're asking you Gentiles to abstain from that because it's right. And the Gentiles come in, and they say, you know what? We lived in this freedom all this time. Now we're coming into an understanding of God's word and what's right. And so, you know what? We're following him. We're, we're good on that. But then they're also coming in and realizing, you know what? There are some things that we engage in that are just really, really, really hard for my Jewish brothers and sisters who are believers now in Christ to be able to deal with. And so I'm going to lay aside my pork. I'm going to lay aside this and that and the other. And this is what they do, church. It's just two people deferring to one another, saying, this is what's right. This is the freedom that I have. But your good is more important to me than my freedom over here. This is how harmony happens. It is a group of diverse and very, very different people all coming together and choosing harmony over homogeny, giving deference to one another and seeking their good above my freedom. It's the gospel, right? This is what God shows us. Giving up his rights as God, giving up some of his freedoms, laying it down, taking on flesh, living this sinless life, suffering, bleeding, and dying upon a cross that we may be one again with him. Church, can you imagine the beauty of a gathering that understood the harmony that he's given to us in Jesus. So it sound like Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. Though I am free and I belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I've become like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law I've become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those who are under the law, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means some may be saved. Church, can you imagine the beauty of a church that lived it out like that. Do you think that our world needs to see that testimony? Given the number of divisions, the amount of things, the amount of vitriol out there, what if they saw a gathering of people that held differences of opinion all over the place, but this unbelievable love and harmony with one another despite it all because they're so fixated on the beauties of God displayed in Jesus Christ the centrality of the gospel that he's given to us, 
that all these other things dissipated in levels of importance and we were able to live in harmony with one another. I'm telling you, church, I, I think that the world needs to see a church that lives together in harmony more than anything else. He wraps it up with a blessing right here. And it's a blessing I just want to read over us before we go out here today. But he says this, he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together with one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may that be true of us, that we would be able to live together in harmony and unity with one another under the banner of Christ. Father, we love you, God. We praise you and we thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus. God, we ask that you would do a work in our gathering that, um, where you're lifted up above every other thing that seeks to divide. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be fully convinced of what you're calling us to do. But God, I pray that in the process of going before you, bringing all things before you, you would produce a humility inside every one of us, God, where we'd be able to stand strong on things that you call us to be strong on and lay things down that you've given us freedom in. Father, I pray that our commitment to one another would better glorify you in the end, that a watching world would see the incredible love the model of a gospel of God laying down his life for our oneness, that we would be brought back into right relationship with you through your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that that would be our testimony today. God, would you do it in the Big C Church? Would you do it here at Dallas Bible Church? God, that with one voice, we would be in harmony. That you would receive all the praise, all the glory in the end. Father, we love you. God, we praise you. We thank you this day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And amen.